the past four weeks, and uh, this morning makes five, we've been looking at different uh, spiritual disciplines, as you know. And last week, last week I suggested to you that one reason we're interested in spiritual disciplines is that we want to take hold of God's promise that by grace we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. We become, God's promise, that we become more like Jesus, more and more like Jesus when we come to know him and accept him and develop a relationship with him as our personal Lord and Savior. And so, if we want to become more like Jesus, stands to reason, we want to do what he did. And Jesus steadfastly lived a life embracing spiritual disciplines like the ones we've been studying and the ones that you see on the screen. And we discussed last week the fact that even though given to us by grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, this transformation, this becoming more and more like Jesus is really hard work. In fact, it takes everything we've got all who we are to become more and more like Jesus and partnering with the Holy Spirit in that transformation. And the reason why it's such hard work, one reason at least, is because there's this thing called self lurking in the shadows. Self or self-interest that constantly tries to get in the way and prevent us from becoming more like Jesus who was selfless, not selfish. Give self or self-interest an inch and it will try and take a mile. And so it takes everything we've got with God's help, but everything we've got to keep self in its submissive Christ-like place so that we're more and more able to truly more and more love God completely And to truly love others as ourselves, just like Jesus did and still does. We also spoke briefly last week about the spiritual discipline of study. Specifically, study of the Bible, spending time in the Word, and and even memorizing Scripture. And so, this morning, I'd like to continue our focus on that discipline in particular. Time in the Word. Studying Scripture. Memorizing Scripture. Why do you suppose that Jesus spent so much time in the Scriptures? Why do you suppose He bothered to memorize it if in fact He did, as every evidence indicates, both historical and biblical? Why did He spend so much time in the Scriptures? This God-man who was God. Why should we? One reason... I think he did, and we should too. One reason for memorizing and meditating on Scripture is found in Proverbs 4, verses 20 through 23. Proverbs 4, 20 through 23, which says, My son, pay attention to what I say. Listen closely to my words. Do not let them out of your sight. Keep them within your heart, for they are life to those who find them and health to a man's whole body. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. 
above all else, God says. Wow, that would be the working definition of emphasis. Above all else, guard your hearts, for it is the wellspring of life. So one big reason, a a big one, that we want God's words in our heart is because God's words help guard our hearts. And boy, do our hearts need guarding, don't they? Why is it so important, do you think, that we guard our hearts? In the Bible, the heart, did you know, is most often used to describe what people use to make decisions. You find the Hebrew word levav. In the context, there's a decision at issue that's being made. What we today call mind People in Bible times lumped into that concept of heart. The heart, biblically, is where decisions are made. And yeah, the heart includes feelings and emotions too, but those feelings and emotions in Bible times were included with what we'd more readily call thoughts. The heart, biblically, is the seat or sits on the throne of where decisions are made. Some of you perhaps noticed when we studied Shema in Deuteronomy and Numbers, God asks us to love him with all our heart, all our soul, and all our might. And at first glance, we might think God doesn't mention our minds. In reality, he does include minds in Shema because in the culture of the day, that word heart, lavav, includes everything that we today would call mind. So when God says, love him with all our hearts, he not only means feelings and emotions, but also our thoughts or our minds in that same word. In the New Testament, Luke, for example, clarifies this for his more Greek audience who were really, really into mind. And so Luke explicitly mentions mind, pulls that explicit word out of the implicit heart. He explicitly mentions mind when Jesus is quoting Shema, just to ensure that Luke's Greek friend, Theophilus, who Luke is writing to, understands that the mind, you Greek person, is included in the command to love. In any event, the biblical heart is where decisions are made. And that's why our hearts need guarding. The concept, now that concept of heart as the decision maker It's not really a stretch for anyone here this morning, is it? I mean, still today, we consider heart as involved in how we make decisions. We have idioms in English even like, if you're making a decision of what to do, someone might say to you, go ahead and follow your heart, right? And that carries with it the idea that the heart is or should be involved in our decisions. So we need to guard our hearts. The Bible also tells us to guard our minds. Make no mistake about it, explicitly. But the Bible, the biblical emphasis is clearly on guarding the heart as well as the eyes because the eyes are windows into the heart and they inform and influence the heart. Now I've been asked before, why, in my opinion, why do I think the Bible emphasizes heart? more uh, than mind, uh, guarding our heart more than it does guarding our minds. And my answer is always, first, the Bible tells us to guard both. Okay, But maybe the emphasis on guarding the heart is because God knows that once the heart is convinced of something, 
When it reaches a heart level, it's, it's far more difficult for someone to change their heart than it is to change their mind. Once the heart's convinced of something, it's far more likely the heart will convince the mind to follow it than it is for the mind to convince the heart to follow the mind. Maybe because our our mind more easily follows our heart than our heart, heart follows our mind. Now I know there are exceptions. It works both ways. I know there are some incredibly strong-minded people whose mind can steer or control how they feel. I know it works that way as well, but my own, my own study and experience of human nature, including my own personal experience, is that when the heart feels a certain way, the mind is more apt to follow the heart than the other way, of, other way around. Seems to me uh, uh, to get someone to change their mind comes easier than to get someone to have a change of heart. So maybe that's why the Bible's very emphatic on guarding our hearts, because God knows once it gets in there, in, in our hearts, that's a terribly, terribly stubborn ship to, to turn. So above all else, God says, guard your hearts. In Deuteronomy, sometimes called Moses' last will and testament. You know what the very last instruction is that God gives to the people of Israel? And he gave them lots of instructions over a long period of time. You know what the very last thing that he had to say to them, right before giving them God's blessing tribe by tribe, and right before he climbed Mount Nebo to die, what's the very last instruction he gave? Here's the last thing he said to all Israel by way of instruction. He says, Take to heart all the words I have solemnly declared to you this day, so that you may command your children to obey carefully all the words of the law. They're not just words. They're not just idle words for you. They, these words, are your life. So no wonder, Proverbs says, above all else, guard your heart. So we put God's words in our heart to be more like Jesus who put God's words in his heart. And God's words in our heart help guard our hearts against temptation and sin. One illustration that um, recently came to mind of how God's words in our hearts help guard our hearts, our decision makers. And uh, like most illustrations, it's imperfect. But one, at least, that came to mind recently is a home alarm system. A um, few weeks ago, when Jill and the kids and I packed up the car and left for vacation to Michigan, we were six hours into the trip. So languishing somewhere in Nebraska. Wow, that state is long. I guess we could say wide. Although, you know, um, Iowa doesn't have to take second chair to anyone. It's a sneaky wide state too. Oh my goodness. But um, anyway, we're six hours into the trip. We're in Nebraska somewhere. You know, Nebraska. My phone rings and it's our home security company telling me, Mr. Lanning, your home alarm is going off. 
It's like, it's like, you know, great. And so then the guy asked me, Mr. Lanny, do you want me to call the police? Do you want me to call Jefferson County Sheriff and send them over to the house? And I pause, because we've had false alarms before. There's a faulty sensor in the window, and, you know, the, the men in blue take a dim view for false alarms. I think some even start charging if you, like, have too many in a year. So I'm thinking, oh, it's been a long time since we set the alarm. Uh, uh, you know, I'll bet it's the sensor. So I decide against it. I say, no, don't call the sheriff. Instead, what I do is um, I call and I send my brother and sister-in-law over there into harm's way. (laughs) Let's go check this out. My alarm's going off, you know. So they go over there. You know, you're waiting. And the phone rings again. And it's Ty. My, my brother-in-law, and he says, good news. He says, you know, the house is secure. No signs of break-in. Um, so I'm thinking, oh, good. It must have just been the sensor. But then he tells me this. You know, someone opened that little, you know, telephone box that's outside on your house by your electrical box. Do you guys know it? Maybe you don't. Go look today. There's a little box, a little telephone box. Someone opened that box of the house and disconnected all the phone lines. Yeah, that's what I thought. So now I called the police. <laughs> and it just bizarre. And the police come over, a report is made, and, and then Ty and Jan, my sister-in-law, reconnect the phone lines. They put a lock on that little box. And a lot of good that does. Things made like a plastic. You just bust the hinge, and now the lock is the hinge. You know, but figure if I put a lock on there, if someone comes looking again, they'll be like, hey, you know, we're on to you. Um, Ty and Jan, they reset the alarm. They bypassed the the window with the faulty sensor, which was the one that went off. Um, And then, you know, I have a brilliant flash of inspiration. At least I I think it was brilliant. I don't know. You tell me. I I tell the kids, and so the kids and I both, uh, we post on Facebook. And some of you saw this because you put a comment and asked me about it. But we post on Facebook the following... Isn't it great when you have a detective living in your house while you're on vacation? <laughs> we didn't. But, you know, the thing asks you, on what do you have on your mind? This is what I have on my mind. It's great when you have a detective living in your house when you go on vacation. And I thought, yeah, because it's just odd that within six hours of our leaving, someone pulls the, it's like, maybe it's someone who knows us well enough to know that we were leaving that morning. You know, so anyway, everything turned out just fine, praise God. Still a mystery, but at least everything stayed secure. Okay, that's, um, that's way more than you needed to know for the illustration this morning. But one way it seems to me that God's word in our hearts guard our hearts, our decision makers, is by sounding an alarm when something's trying to get in there that shouldn't be in there, or something's trying to influence us or tempt us to do something God's Word says we shouldn't do. And so in this way, God's Word is the standard, is the measure against which we measure everything we do. And by the way, God's word needs to be that standard, doesn't it? 
Because what else possibly should be or could be more than God's own words to us? I read about and hear that some today, even within the church, are suggesting and pushing that our own personal experience or opinion should be the standard against we measure our actions. Not God's words necessarily, but our own opinion based on our own experience. Whenever I hear that, I always think, uh, I wonder what Adam and Eve would say if that, about that idea if we could ask them today. You know, God says to them, don't eat the fruit. They reply, in essence, but look at it. It's so good to eat. It makes sense to eat good things. And it'll give us wisdom. And wisdom's a good thing. And God would want us to have good things. And so the don't eat command didn't really mean that. Must have been optional. Crunch. Oops. And they were without sin at the time they made this inglorious decision. And their hearts still needed guarding by God's words. Maybe they hadn't hidden that word, don't eat that fruit, in their hearts. Eve, Eve sure seems confused over just what exactly God had told Adam. Did she forget? And because we don't have a record, at least, of God telling it directly to Eve, it came through Adam, maybe it was Adam that didn't tell her right what God had said. Hadn't passed it on. In any event, there Adam sat in complicit silence. Or maybe the snake disconnected the phones. I don't know. <laughs> but their alarm didn't go off to guard their hearts, their decision makers. Our own assessment of things, even when we love God and love others, even when we know Jesus is our personal Lord and Savior, even aided by the presence and indwelling of the Holy Spirit in community, which is also an excellent source of truth, that experiential truth of the Spirit. But even then, the Spirit has always worked hand in glove with God's presence, not only personally in the form of the Spirit, but His presence in His words. And to try to drive a wedge between the Word of God and the experience even of the Holy Spirit as if they're different and can be used to contradict, we're barking up the wrong tree, I think. Our own assessment of things, it's a lousy standard, it's a lousy guard of our hearts, and it pales in comparison to God's words expressed in the Bible. His guide, which is what Torah best means in English, not law. A better translation, in my opinion, is guide. And how about Jesus? When faced in the wilderness with the ideas of turning stone to bread, throwing himself off the Temple Mount, and seizing power over the world, how did Jesus respond? Did he say, well, let me think about that? No. He had the Word of God in his heart. In this case, Deuteronomy. Whoa. 
And I was right there. And he used God's words there as the standard in weighing his options. The God-man used God's words in weighing his options. And when the devil's ideas set off the alarm, when they failed the standard set by God's word, in this case in Deuteronomy, Jesus said, no thanks, I'm sticking with what God says in Scripture. It was the standard by which Jesus measured his actions and, incidentally, all of his teaching, without exception. And if Jesus used God's word as the standard for his actions and teaching, shouldn't we, too, if we're to be just like him? If we don't have God's word in our hearts to begin with, like Jesus did, if we don't study it and learn it and know it well, inside and out, like Jesus did, will we even be able to use his word as a standard, the standard for our actions? Now, a word of caution to all of us who desire to use God's word as our standard of living. We need to be very, very careful to realize that God's word is a living word. And as the living word, his standards by design amazingly adapt to fit every time, every culture, every person. We cannot ever compromise or change what God's word says but we need to be eager to adapt its application to ever-changing cultures and those of you who have struggled with this you know it isn't always easy it's seldom easy to discern whether a given circumstance is calling for us to adapt which is good or is calling on us to compromise or change what God says which is bad. The easiest road, the easiest road for me as a Christian, the easiest road for the righteous even, the most tempting one sometimes, is for us to conclude or have kind of a knee-jerk that every changing circumstance is one asking us to change what God says. And it takes great care and compassion and patience and empathy and love and humility and prayer and study to carefully discern whether or not we can adapt without compromising or changing what the Bible says. But the answer certainly isn't to throw out the Bible as the standard of what is or is not true. It's God's words. Back to the home alarm system illustration, um, if I haven't exhausted it. (laughs) If we fail as a church community to adapt to changing circumstances, adapt without changing God's word, but if we fail to adapt, then we're like the homeowner who wakes up in the middle of the night because the alarm's going off, and he grabs his shotgun from underneath his pillow and runs downstairs blasting away at anything that moves. Maybe that illustration doesn't work in the wild west of Colorado where I think that may go on sometimes in the mountains. The homeowner knows the truth. One of his doctrinal statements is, no one is allowed in my house in the middle of the night. 
Alarm goes off. Someone's in my house. It's been violated. So he feels justified going downstairs. Guns are blazing. Blam, 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 blam. Then when all the shooting is done and the lights come on, he discovers to his horror that he has shot his own son because the boy misplaced his key and came in through a window. Oh, no. I think at heart many at least, of our more progressive brothers and sisters in the worldwide church are empathizing with those that feel that way sometimes in how they're treated by the more traditional church. That the traditional church responds to changing circumstances with guns ablazing before taking the time to look before leveling someone. Maybe it's a false alarm and it's something we should consider carefully. Maybe we should adapt here. We can't change if it means going against God's standard, his word, which is where some advocates of change go very wrong, in my opinion. As wrong as Adam and Eve. But let's be sure before we respond, and let's be sure to respond in love, even if the response is no. The living nature of God's word that enables it to adapt in any circumstance. You know, I'm pretty sure that's a big reason why God put so many of his standards in a story. A story is relational. A story is a bit messier because it's relational. A story invites us in to become part of the story and spurs empathy with all involved in the story. It's concrete and real. It speaks more to the heart, perhaps, rather than just to the intellect. There's less temptation to go the way of some Pharisees and and misapply a however clear standard and just start blasting people. There's more room for the Holy Spirit to help us discern right and wrong. A story is experiential. It casts truth in the context of relationships. So we need to make every assessment of proposed change or ideas in love and empathy and patience and prayer and all the rest as we measure it against God's standard in the Bible. And memorizing scripture by meditating on it, spending time in the word, is a great place to start in that process. In fact, a needed place to start, a needed preparation for whatever life brings. And you know life will bring it. Time in the word puts God's standard in our hearts. It helps guard our hearts by acting as an alarm when something comes along suggesting we say or do something that God's word says we shouldn't. And it's an alarm we go investigate before opening fire. A few um, memorization tips I'll leave you with this morning and then uh, we'll try to memorize something. 
But a few memorization tips that I've collected over the years, and uh, a few people after the morning service came and said, I find these things helpful too, but here are five that I find helpful in teaching students in particular in Bible and, and, and what they tell me helps them memorize. So, and it hel- helps me too. See what you think. Number one, memorize by meditating on the Word. Chew on it for a while. Apply what you're reading or looking at or trying to memorize that week. If you can, make a connection to someone or something going on in your life. Make it concrete and more than just words that you somehow like get in there like it's some sort of magic formula that if you can go da 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 that you've got it. And you know, if you meditate on something long enough, if you read it over and over and over, if you take it along on a card and you have it there and it's just sort of there, if you meditate on something long enough, you'll memorize it. Because it's just there all the time. Suddenly you'll have it. And it's part of who you are. It's in your heart. Second tip. Try memorizing by praying the text. And do it out loud. I don't know why it happened. I haven't researched it. I guess I could make a guess. But I don't know why it happened that since the first century when prayers were always out loud, why it became the norm for personal prayers even, to just be silent. There's something that happens when you pray out loud. If you haven't tried it, try it next time. You might, you might feel weird at first because you're alone and here you are praying out loud and no one's there. To, well, God's there to hear it. In my own experience, when I pray out loud, even when alone, I don't know, something happens when I hear my own voice speaking like I would to you or you who are here listening. It makes God there listening. It, there's some, And pray the text. Whatever verse you're looking at, the prayer might even be something like, Father in heaven, I know it says here in your word, and you say it. Or maybe you say something like, you know, it says here in your word this, and when I was talking with Nancy this morning, I really thought maybe something in the word stimulates something for you to pray over. But pray the text when you're memorizing. Three, find a book or a source or someone, you know, that's given it some study that might suggest some key passages to memorize. That can be helpful, I think, when you're starting out at least uh, um, memorizing lots of verses. Four, here's my rule of thumb. It's the one-week rule. Uh, In my experience in talking with others, you, you really know a passage. You really have it memorized when at least one sign is you can recite it after not having looked at it uh, for seven days. So last time you've read it or seen it in print was seven days ago. If you've still got it, in my experience, that's one sign at least, okay, I I at least know it by memory now. And together with this one, don't be discouraged. I told you last week, I think, don't be discouraged if the more you memorize, the less you can remember. You know, that used to discourage me. Still does. I work like crazy. I get this thing down, and then a month later I don't know it. I think, well, what was the use? Uh, plenty of use, seems to me. In my experience, and others too have shared this with me, if you put that kind of time of meditating and memorizing, even if you haven't 
said it out loud again for years, when you need it or when someone else needs it from you, God will bring that through the Holy Spirit, those same words that you put the work into, back to your mind and heart. He honors that partnering with him in writing his words on our heart. Four. Oop, five. Last one is just this. If you haven't, if you've never memorized before, if it's kind of, just start. Pick one. Even if it's one verse a year. We could probably do better than that. But even if it's one, just pick one and try it. And then, and then don't stop. If it takes you a long time, okay, it takes you a long time. But just keep turning to it when you can. And over time, over a lifetime, if you start and don't stop, you'll be putting God's word in your heart. And it will help guard your hearts, the Bible says. Okay. What I'd like to do is try to, or is, no, we can do it, not try, we'll succeed. We're going to memorize a passage this morning, and I've picked um, maybe the, the, one of the best-known verses in all the Bible. But what I'd like you to do is to stand, and then I'm going to stand here. You kind of glance at the screen first if you like. If you can even move in like toward each other a little bit, I know in every kind of speaking, preaching, one-on-one class I've taken, you know, what they tell you is, Whatever you do, don't ask people to move from their seats. Because it's like their territory. You'll offend them. And then they'll be mad. The whole, is anybody mad that I'm... No one's moved. Okay, you know, come on. <laughs> Go ahead. Just come on to the aisles a little bit, if you would, just so we can be a little bit closer together. Okay, good. Maybe pretend that we're a circular, you know, auditorium in here. Okay. Awesome. Now, the passage that I've chosen is John 3, 16 and 17. Now, 16, many of you have learned before. And the reason I've chosen this passage is, well, it's a seminal foundational passage of truth, but it's also one of Pastor Todd's pet peeves that John 3.16 is really well known, and a key contextual companion, verse 17, isn't so much. So we're going to learn them together this morning, okay? Here's how we'll do it. I'll read a line. I want you all to look at the screen first, wherever you can see it. We've got three. I'll read a line, and then you respond it. So while you read it, you'll hear me say it, you'll read it, and then you'll do it responsively to me. Okay, we'll do that a couple times through. You ready? Okay, what? you guys ready? Okay, thanks. Okay, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Okay, let's do it again responsibly. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son. That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. All right, now everyone kind of look toward the center and don't look at the screen. Okay, I caught the first service, caught all sorts of people cheating, so don't cheat. As I can see you, you know, when you're looking at me, okay. That's okay if you need to, but try. See see how much you've got, even in 90 seconds. Okay, you ready? Okay, together now, ready? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Yes. Okay, we're halfway. 17. Do it responsibly again. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to condemn the world 
but to save the world, save the world. Through, him. through him. Okay, let's try it again. For God did not send his son into the world, to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Okay, now we're going to start over way back at verse 16. Can we do it? Yes. Okay, everybody look in here. All right, ready? Let's just try. It's fun. Okay, you ready? Okay, and we're working on guarding our hearts. Okay, all together. For God so loved the world that he sent one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Amen. All right, give yourselves a hand. You can find yourself back to your seat just for a second. Good job. Now, your job, your assignment now, you immediately stand and greet, breaks out over the crowd. It's amazing. No. Your assignment now this week is to meditate on those two verses. Spend time with them, even 15 minutes a day for seven days, and you will have them if you do that. Try to attach those words to something going on in your life, and you'll have those two verses, and you've made a start. You know, I I think what I'll do is for the rest of this season, um, a sermon series, at least through Christmas and maybe beyond. We'll see. See what you guys think. Um, in, uh, in September, uh, we're uh, launching a series on the parables of Jesus. Can't wait. And maybe what I'll do is for each week or each two weeks, um, I'll assign a memory verse that we could be learning together as a community. How many would like to do that? Hey, that's good. First service, there was only six. and you know, here there were... So at least put that out there for us to do you know, in, in community. Okay, But meditate on those two and see if you get those two verses down. And as a community in a week... You know, we'll have those words. I was, um, I'll close this way, then we need to go. Um, I was Googling around uh, as part of my research. I'll Google here, there, and everywhere. And I came across a woman named Ann Voskamp. I was surprised first service that someone had heard of her. Maybe some of you have too. But uh, she's just, uh, she has her own personal blog. And it was a turn of phrase that I'd put in, and it brought up her personal blog. So I started reading it, and I found out that Anne, she's a simple farmer's wife on a Canadian farm somewhere, and she homeschools their six kids. So she's out in the middle of nowhere, but she writes this blog. And uh, long story short, the woman is gifted in terms of creative writing, etc., um, I saw on her blog that just recently she started speaking at some places. Zondervan is about to publish a book, but for, she's just coming out where she's more known. And I just was struck by this quote from Anne. And um, I'll let her close it because I, I like what, how she says it. And she says this And I know it again. That what a heart knows by heart is what a heart really knows. And I've got to hide words, with a capital W, in the chambers to cut down the soul stalker, pump pulsing truth 
through the veins. Keep an eye out for Ann Voskamp. Um, I think we'll be hearing more from her um, in the national church. So my friends, as we continue to grab hold of God's promise that we can partner with him in becoming more and more like Jesus, one of the things we can do and need to do, study and know the Bible. Commit it to memory, as so help you God. And invite it in your heart through meditation and review and knowing it. So it helps guard our hearts in Christ Jesus, as the Bible promises it will do. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you've given us your words, your guide for living. Help us, Father. Help us, Father, to continue to live by those words. Help us, Father, to reach the world that John 3 says you love with your words, to reach that world in love so they know how much it is you desperately love everyone and desperately want them to know the love that is in your Son. Help us, Father, as many of us endeavor to memorize more of your words. Honor your promise, Father, that when we memorize, when we put your word in our hearts, and even as we live it out in love of others, that in turn it will help guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus as we become more and more like your Son. We ask this, Father, in the precious name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Would you stand, please, for the benediction. God's blessing today comes from... Philippians verse 4, his good words to send you into the world again with. It's a bit long, but it's okay. (laughs) Philippians 4, Paul writes to the church in Philippi and to us today. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about about anything. But in everything, by prayer and petition, and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In his name, amen. Amen. See you next week. Children's Musical, 9 and 1030. Don't miss it. One of my favorite services of the year. Go in peace.